Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. So as we start a brand new week on Political Rewind, I want to establish quite clearly that today is Monday, June 21st, 2021. And the reason I want to be careful about establishing that date is because it's kind of astonishing how many topics on this show we're going to discuss today relate to something that happened seven months ago, the presidential election on November 3rd, 2020, seven months ago, and yet, and yet, there are ongoing uh, conspiracy theories, uh, passionate arguments about uh, the question of whether uh, here in Georgia, Joe Biden actually won the election. And of course, this isn't confined just to Georgia. It's happening in other states around the country as Trump and his Republican allies continue to spread the theory, the conspiracy theory about the election being stolen. So we're going to uh, talk about some of the stories that relate to uh, that, uh, that have all popped up in the news this week. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm so glad to have you all with us. For you dads out there, I hope you had a great day yesterday. I got to tell you, my kids made me so, my grown children, <laughs> they were wonderful to be with. And I I just love having time to uh, celebrate our family. And I hope all of you out there did uh, too. So let's get right to introducing the panel. Jim Galloway is here as he is on uh, Mondays. Jim, of course, for many years was the author of The Political Insider at uh, the AJC. And of course, he probably has more historical knowledge about Georgia politics than just about anybody else we could think to want to have on the show. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing fine. And, uh, and just a moment away from politics, how about them Atlanta Hawks? What an amazing night they had last night, and it's so exciting. You're right, Jim, to have a team in this city that we can celebrate uh, <laughs> that didn't collapse when it came right down to it. They move into the Eastern, uh, they, they move into the, they go play against Milwaukee for the Eastern Championship. So it's very exciting. You're right. Thanks for mentioning that. We're also joined uh, by Renee Alegria, president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. Uh, Renee, you have some very exciting news uh, from over the weekend. What happened to Mundo Hispanico? Um, you, well, first of all, thank you for having me again, Bill. It's always uh, fun to be on the show. Um, but yeah, as we were discussing before the show started, uh, when you asked how my weekend went, my weekend went great because Mundo uh, won eight Emmy Awards uh, on Saturday night. So we're, uh, we're a very happy... Uh, news company at the moment. Um, mm. The staff is amazing, and uh, we just try to get our stories out there in the best way we can, and uh, it was a great validation. So there you go. There's and, of course, for, for, uh, we should point out that this is for Munda Hispanico Digital because digital uh, uh, sites are now included in the Emmy. So congratulations to you, uh, Thank uh, you. for that. We're very happy to have back with us Alan Abramowitz, political science professor at Emory University, and one of the really uh, most uh, uh, insightful prognosticators based on the data that he crunches in every election cycle of what we might expect to see 
in election outcomes. Alan, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you. And I, I did forecast that the Hawks would uh, beat the 76ers in seven games. Did you really? No. <laughs> Definitely not. We are going to we are going to assume, Alan. We are going to assume that nothing after that comment that you're saying uh, is uh, is 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 fake news. We're going to assume that from this point on, everything you say will be based on will be fact based or interpreted or, or accurately interpreted. We're joined also for the first time on the show today by Professor Adrian Jones, Morehouse College. Um, Professor Jones is a professor of political science, but she also has a law degree, and I think you uh, certainly uh, uh, continue to uh, write about and uh, get involved in matters related to the law. Have I got that right, Adrian? You do have that right. And on the Morehouse campus, I, along with my other colleagues, uh, prepare students for law school and send them off to uh, fantastic careers. Tell us, because it's your first appearance, I want to give the, the uh, listeners a little chance to know just a bit more about you. Uh, where did you come to Atlanta from? Where did you grow up? Just a real quick uh, capsule summary of your past. So I consider myself a New Yorker, although I was not actually born there. And um, I did a fellowship to complete my dissertation uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, um, almost right before I came. And um, I've been down here in Georgia for about five years. And my main focus of study is the vote, has been the Voting Rights Act and then voter suppression and voter access. And so I write and think about those issues and try to uh, make sure that people are informed about what's happening with local and national elections and that they understand the kinds of issues that um, have emerged from the 2020 election, for example, some of which we'll speak about today. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, being with us. Uh, let's plunge into thank these you uh, issues. for having me. Uh, Jim, sure. Jim, um, today... Uh, we are going to see the continuation of a lawsuit that was filed earlier this year uh, in Henry County Court, a lawsuit by a, a, an organization, Garland Favorito, who has been a longtime sort of, uh, he's, a, he's a guy who, you know, thinks of himself as an election expert. He's perpetuated a number of conspiracy theories over the years as well, though, and he went to court claiming that there was massive fraud in Fulton County, especially in the absentee balloting in Fulton County. And uh, Chief Judge of the Henry County Superior Court, Brian Amaro, uh, said that, yes, indeed, Favorito's uh, uh, request that the Fulton County absentee ballots be recounted uh, should go forward and uh, we thought that that was going to happen already, but the but Fulton County Commission and uh, other others in the case made an appeal immediately to to the judge. And <clears throat> today, uh, Judge Morrow is going to hear whether or not the recount should be stopped entirely. Right. 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 This is a this is a hearing on a motion to dismiss, uh, and I believe it, I believe it's going to be virtual. So it's 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 not something we can. We can we can sit in on, uh, and uh, I think uh, it's uh, 
this is not quite as disturbing as Arizona, but it's pretty darn close. Uh, the judge has said that, that Fulton County will retain custody of the ballots. They will not hand the ballots over to a third party, as happened in in, in, uh, in Arizona, nor will, nor will uh, uh, Verito's group uh, get access to the, to the voting machines. Uh, that will remain a, a preserve of the county, and so so there will be no tampering there. Uh, it, it, it's a look. This is a you know we've got we've got two tracks going here. We've we've got on on one hand we've got all these these little these these lawsuits which are uh, they're they're kind of uh, they're proliferating. Under under Donald Trump's uh, beneficence, if you will, I mean, he has smiled upon the Arizona uh, account, and so you've seen them pop. Uh, these things pop up in a in a number of states. But then there's the second track, and that's the actual fact finding uh, that's going on in, in the aftermath of 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 the the no- November third election. And and I know we'll get to it later, but you know, it, just the fact that that you have this happening in Henry County, and uh, uh, that email uh, about BJ Pack becoming a topic of of a of a of a U.S. House investigation uh, into into why he why he quit. Uh, the presumption is that he was pressured after he refused to look into these uh, into these uh, uh, some some fairly corkscrew uh, theories. Um, Alan, here's what here's what Favorito alleges in the lawsuit that they initially filed. Um, they the lawsuit alleges that election workers and observers who signed sw- sworn statements saw absentee ballots that weren't creased from being mailed, appeared to be marked by a machine rather than by hand, and were printed on different paper. And the the suit also. Uh, repeats a claim of fraud based on security video that shows cases of ballots being pulled from under a table and counted while observers and the news media were not present. Uh, And 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 they go on to say that proper procedures weren't followed by workers counting ballots by hand during the audit. Now, we should point out that, of course, (laughs) the the results of the election in Fulton County, we've now had three counts of these votes. So uh, what's happening here is, you know, uh, reasonably questioned by by people who just want this all over with. Well, absolutely. And in fact, um, what he's doing here, he's, he's just raising some of these same issues that were raised in the immediate aftermath uh, of the election. And, and which were dismissed uh, by the courts and which were dismissed by Georgia's election officials. Uh, we've mm-hmm. already heard uh, the Secretary of State uh, and, and the other top election officials in the state of Georgia specifically refute these very allegations. Uh, I am just frankly astonished that this judge uh, ever agreed to allow this recount. There's absolutely no point to it. It is, it is nothing more than a, a continuation of the attempt by uh, supporters of former President Trump to relitigate the 2020 election uh, and to uh, once again make these uh, baseless claims that there was widespread fraud and the election was stolen from, from Mr. Trump. Uh, that's what this is about, and uh, it's 
just absolutely shameful, I think, that we're in this position. We see what's happening in Arizona. Uh, and, it, you know, I don't know if it's going to go forward, but if it, if it does, it may not be as bad as what's happening in Arizona. But, but we, can, we can expect to see some of the same sorts of nonsense that we're seeing in, in Arizona with, for example, the, the search for evidence of, of, of bamboo uh, in, in the ballots and, and, you know, in the paper. Uh, th- things, things of that sort. It's, it's, it's just wacky. Uh, it's nonsensical, uh, and it should be. It, they really should. The judge should just throw this out. Adrian, I, I, I want to get you involved here, but as I do, let me quickly point out what what uh, Alan is talking about when he says bamboo in the paper. There mm-hmm. is a conspiracy theory that the bamboo comes from South Korea because ballots were literally shipped in from South Korea to Fulton County and added to the totals. Adrian. I mean, I also think this is dangerous, right? We're reinvigorating um, information that is not true along this idea that voter fraud exists. Um, It puts Fulton County in the hot spot as a space that um, does not exercise fair elections. And we know that we had a clean, um, very effective election in 2020. And it is a danger to election workers and um, voting activists here in the county and in the state, right, as you are um, re-litigating this literally and in the news, um, people are suffering threats that have now uh, re-emerged since the election after already being threatened um, for their lives because they participated in a public service that is extremely important to us being able to elect elected representatives who represent us. Renee. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I, I just want to uh, chime in here. Um, look, I, I, I think that that we're, we are entering into this new dangerous, as Adrian put it, phase of uh, political and our media intersecting, right, so that you get a uh, facts are just not facts anymore, and they become malleable depending on who is interpreting those facts. Um, you overlay that with misinformation, and then you get conspiracy theories that we're going to see play out in the court, um, which is, yeah, astounding. This is new territory for everyone here. And I do think that we're going to be talking about the 2020 election um, for a generation uh, because we're going to point to it as the crux of how misinformation and facts uh, became, uh, well, interpretable in a, in a, in a way that is uh, not applicable to, say, our fact-based political systems and our election systems in the courts. So, look, we're going to be talking about this for a very long time. It is scary, but I, 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 I do have faith that, you know, reason will play out and the, uh, the election uh, officials as well as the courts will, you know, will rule as they have ruled, um, on the side of, of fact. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem here is that this, this may be kind of uh, serve as, as a preparation for, for another aspect of uh, SB 202, uh, the, the election law that the legislature passed uh, this, set, this last session. 
because you've got a, a strong signal out of Brad Raffensperger, the the you know who the the, the Secretary of State who was was declared a hero uh, in fending off Trump's Trump uh, and his quest for for those eleven thousand extra votes that would mm-hmm. give him the state. Uh, he is he is now launched an investigation into Fulton County's uh, 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 handling of of. Uh, audit audit reports on absentee ballots. Uh, again, nothing, nothing. Uh, they've been audited, but it, it's more of a more of a bookkeeping uh, kind of a documentation of chain of custody. And he and he laid out some signals that that might be used as grounds for a state election board, which he no longer has a vote on, to take over the Fulton County Board of Elections. Yeah. Uh, and that would be that that would be a, a very, very big development here. Alan, we should point out that no matter what happens with this this audit of the absentee ballots in Fulton County, the election outcome is not going to change. Period. Joe Biden is no. not going to be declared the loser of Georgia, even if, you know, there were some massive fraud that were, were shown that doesn't seem to be there at all. So first of all, we should point that out, Alan. But here's the other thing that I want to ask you about, because you look at voter behavior pretty extensively. You, you analyze it carefully. I keep thinking that the more attention that Republicans bring to fraud in the elections, their allegations of fraud, the more they uh, dis... The, the more they disincentivize their voters from going out and voting. We saw that in the runoff elections in January when the mm-hmm. repeated claims of, of fraud in the uh, November election uh, drove down Republican turnout in the uh, Senate race uh, in January. Right. So I think, I think the Republicans are trying to walk a fine line here. Uh, on the one hand, I think they're trying to raise these sorts of issues uh, in, in order to obviously not to reverse the outcome of the 2020 election. Everyone knows that's not going to happen. Everyone accepts some QAnon followers. Um, what they're really trying to do is position themselves so that in 2022, that um, first of all, uh, they are hoping that these changes in the election rules will make it more difficult for supporters of Democratic candidates to go to the polls. I think ultimately that's going to fail. But they're also, in a much more worrisome way, making it easier for Republican state officials to intervene and step into local elections, uh, the conduct of local elections. And that's what we're seeing with the replacement of members of some of these election boards. That's what we're seeing with the change in the rules over the governance of uh, over the state election board, over the who sits on that board, who makes the decisions. Uh, that's what we're seeing uh, uh, with regard to, you know, all, all, all of these issues. And, and, and I think the other thing we have to think about is, um, you know, what is it going to be like to have an election potentially conducted by a Secretary of State, Jody Height, for example, as opposed to a Brad Raffensperger. Uh, Brad Raffensperger, who had enough integrity to, to reject these overtures from President Trump, even though he's now trying to kind of play to the Republican base in some ways and trying to kind of uh, uh, position himself to, uh, uh, for the Republican primary next year. But if someone like Jody Heiss is there as Secretary of State, and he's been endorsed by Donald Trump, 
uh, and there's a good chance he'll win the Republican primary, you know, then, then I, I think the likelihood that we would see a secretary of state who would be willing to intervene in a way to try to uh, re- reverse the outcome of an election at the local level if it goes against uh, the, the Republican candidate is, I, I think, going to be uh, substantially greater. And, and that, that uh, and is it, very, very worrisome. Adrian, I want to get you in here. I want to add to and what Alan said. I, yeah, would go add ahead. That, I would add that this front loading, you know, it makes a Fulton County, for example, a fall guy in advance. So, you know, we have real facts happening when the state is taking over Fulton County or taking over a particular precinct. And we've already established that that precinct is problematic and uh, or the Fulton County as a whole um, is guilty, essentially, of violating election rules. And I think that's even more problematic in um, rural counties which might not have the same kind of voice as Fulton County, right? We're talking about Spalding and uh, Morgan. Um, You know, you cannot, we've got to somehow change the discussion to the right to vote, the right to access, how we're going to operate under SB 202, um, reminding people that they do have the right to get out and participate, as opposed to this complete focus on voter fraud and this defensive position that we've put ourselves in um, where we're actually making this the truth. Um, I think the United States has a lot of practice with this, right? I mean, a lot of this is undergirded by white supremacy, which are ideas that have been developed in the same kind of a way. And they are now sort of tacitly accepted. And um, with these elections, I think it's very important that we try to figure out how to get out of that conundrum. Um, Renee, let me add one layer to this and then uh, certainly ask you to comment on all of it. New York Times over the weekend uh, published a story um, under the headline, How Republican States Are Expanding Their Power Over Elections. Uh, They say in Georgia, Republicans are removing Democrats of color from local boards. In Arkansas, they've stripped election control from county authorities, and they're expanding their election power in many other states. And, Renee, the uh, uh, person who they single out uh, in the lead of this article is a woman named Lonnie Hollis. She's been a member of Georgia's Troop County Election Board in West Georgia uh, for eight years She's a Democrat. She's one of two black women on the board. She's an advocate of Sunday voting. Um, But this year, she is going to be removed from the board, the result of a local election law signed by Brian Kemp. This is the New York Times reporting. And, And the reason for this is that previously, election board members were selected by both political parties. So and um, and uh, as well as county commissioners and 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 others uh, but now the GOP-controlled county commission in Troop will have the sole authority under this new law, 202, to restructure the board and appoint all new members. So, Renee, the larger context for this is that when, when Senate Bill 202 was being debated, people were picking apart lots of different aspects of the bill and trying to figure out whether they really were voter suppression-oriented or not. And in some cases, it was a little unclear. But it's becoming more and more clear 
that the biggest impact, political and partisan impact, may be the power that the legislature and the governor have given themselves in this law to transform uh, local election boards and how local elections are conducted. Your turn, Renee. Well, look, I, I think that this is part of something much larger that we're living through. Um, you know, once once a political party begins to to tackle the actual rules, you have a political party that's that's fighting out of a corner. And now that we're you know talking about this, witnessing how this is working in our local communities, um, you know, like Ms. Hollis, as featured in the New York Times, you know, it's going to rile up the other side. Uh, you know, Democrats are going to get engaged, involved. This is, you know, this, 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 what, what we're seeing in this fight being picked by the laws that are changing, um, again, is, is, is something that when you take a, a, a real big picture look at it, is, is the Republican Party that's just out of ideas. That is not something that, you know, they're going to they're gonna play, they're going to they're gonna tackle the actual rules as opposed to put forth what their vision of this country is supposed to be. Um, and with that, I, I, I do believe uh, you're going to see a, a, a radically a larger increased engagement from young people. Um, there are going to be disenfranchised groups that are going to plug back in or plug in for the first time because this reminds them of what happened in, say, their home countries. Uh, we at Mundo, uh, we, you know, we cover a lot about the immigrant experience, you know, and what happened in and is happening in um, Latin American countries, Central American countries, and the reason why folks immigrated to the U.S. in the first place. They're seeing this play out, and, and uh, for the most part, they're like, oh, my God, we've, we've done that, been there. That's not why we moved here. We're going to change this, and we know how because we can vote, right? So those are my two cents there, Bill. All right. Um, let me add one more element to our conversation about uh, efforts to change voting laws uh, this is a story that, that really unfolds in Arizona, but it certainly has application here in Georgia. Adrian, before we went on the air, you reminded me that as the Supreme Court comes to the end of a term, they've got some decisions that will be released in the next week. Uh, and one of them is Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee, a case which unfolded in Arizona. And it deals with two provisions in Arizona st state law. One is a policy that requires an entire ballot to be thrown out if the ballot was cast in the wrong precinct. So, uh, and by the way, that is now part of the New Georgia election law as well. And the point of that is, quite simply, if I vote in the wrong precinct, it does matter if I vote for a local official who I'm not really entitled to vote for. But if I'm voting for governor, uh, should not my ballot count in terms of a state election official or a state uh, 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 candidate for office? That's one uh, uh, part of it. And then ballot harvesting or collecting ballots by third parties is also part of this suit in uh, Arizona that the Supreme Court will decide. So, Adrian, this will have a big impact on Georgia because both of those provisions are now in the new Georgia law. And the uh, people who brought this uh, suit to the court claim that this is an effort to disenfranchise uh, minority voters. 
Um, I think this is very important, especially under SB 202. Um, you know, according to the current rules, if you're in the wrong precinct, which lots of voters were in 2018 and 2020, particularly in uh, precincts of color, uh, it means that you will not have the opportunity to vote. Um, 64, in terms of your point about, um, say, a statewide or federal election, 64% of provisional ballots in uh, Fulton County this year were Biden-Harris votes, right? Those would have been disappeared um, if those provisional ballots had not been accepted. The other really important piece about this case is that it determines how Section 2, which is the remaining live provision under the Voting Rights Act that allows people to get relief when they are discriminated against based upon the voting laws in their state or locality, are evaluated. And so, uh, you know, the Supreme Court's response to this decision is going to have a major impact on um, you know, what happens in the future in terms of the ability to get relief. Um, although I agree with Renee that, um, you know, voters will be motivated. Um, this is in the public eye. Um, and when these kinds of issues are loud and uh, people are aware of them, as, as we've seen in our own state, uh, people bite the bullet and make sure that they um, figure out how to express their opinions and get their ballots cast. So let's hope for a good decision and let's hope for high motivation from voters in Georgia, Arizona, and the like. Well, that's right. I think that um, one of the likely effects of uh, the new Georgia election law and of similar election laws in other states is that we're going to see an effort by uh, uh, democratic groups and uh, and other voting rights advocates to uh, organize and and uh, make sure that number not only the people get to the polls but that they're educated ab about the voting process uh, and how they can cast their ballots and what to do in case their vote is challenged and what to do if they find themselves in the wrong precinct. So uh, it's disproportionately. Uh, voters of color and Democratic voters who are affected by these provisions. Um, the reason voters end up in the wrong precinct is usually because of, often at least, because of changes in uh, the precinct boundaries or changes in the precincts themselves and voting, voting places. Uh, and those tend to occur disproportionately in uh, areas with large minority uh, populations. Uh, so there's no question, I think, that these provisions are specifically targeting uh, voters of color who tend to be very disproportionately Democratic voters. Um, but again, in the, in the end, I'm not sure they're going to be all that effective, uh, produce the results that are desired by those who are writing these laws, you know, because I think you will see pushback, you will see organization, counter-organization. Uh, and in the end, I, I think you know, people's votes will be counted. Uh, Alan Abramowitz, you get the last word in the segment because we got to get to a break. But, Alan, I do think it's important to point out to our listeners, you've been saying that consistently. All through the fight over these bills when they were being uh, debated in the legislature, uh, you have said just what you did there, that you think the, uh, uh, the anticipated outcome that Republicans seem to have simply may not turn out that way at all. Let's get to our first break. We'll be back in a minute with more.
We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, glad to have with us Renee Alegria of Mundo Hispanico. Adrian Jones, professor of political science at Morehouse College, joins us for uh, her first appearance on the show. Ellen Abramowitz from Emory is uh, back with us. And, of course, Jim Galloway uh, is with us as well as he is on every Monday. Jim, you alluded to it uh, earlier, but uh, B.J. Pack is uh, going to soon, uh, we believe soon, uh, be testifying in uh, Washington in front of the uh, House Oversight Committee. They released a tranche of emails related to efforts to pressure PAC when he was U.S. Uh, uh, attorney for the Northern District of Georgia as uh, Trump and his allies were trying to overturn the results of the election. And as we all recall, PAC resigned very suddenly, very abruptly uh, from that position. And there's uh, speculation immediately that it may have had something to do with uh, Trump. And and now more than ever, we think that he probably wanted to get out while people in the administration were pushing him hard to help them overturn the election results, Jim. Right, right. Um, And and I think that if if my memory is correct, the email, it was simply a uh, uh, please call me ASAP message, uh, and it was sent on a late, late Sunday. And uh, first thing the next Monday morning, uh, he announced his resignation, and uh, it was immediately accepted. Uh, Trump uh, Trump replaced him, I think, with the U- with the U.S. attorney out of Savannah, uh, who ultimately came to the same conclusion that there was no there there in these allegations of election fraud. Uh, what's what's interesting about B.J. Pack is, uh, who is a, a a former member of the legislature, uh, in quite good standing. Uh, uh, many people have 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 uh, noted that he's 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 likely got a pretty good political career ahead of him. Uh, since uh, since he resigned, he has been something of a sphinx. He has not said a word in public about uh, about uh, who who called him. Who did he talk to? What was the demand? And uh, what was he asked to do? Uh, and this, but now he is, he is, he's apparently indicated a willingness to do this. And, and it's going to be, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this impacts uh, whatever political career he might have in mind for himself in the future. Yeah, exactly. So we'll watch as that uh, story continues uh, to unfold. Um, and, uh, Perhaps we'll see B.J. Peck in front of the Oversight Committee sooner and, and get more detail on just how he felt he had been uh, uh, pressured. Uh, Alan Abramowitz, I want to turn to you for a minute on a story that uh, you suggested might be worth a couple of minutes. Tomorrow, finally, the New York mayor's primary race uh, unfolds. And you said you see a lot of similarities between that and uh, our politics here. Just for a moment, you give us your take on that before we move on to other topics, because that's a very current story in political news. Right. Well, this is a Democratic primary. Um, There's a a large field of candidates running. Whoever wins this primary will almost certainly go on to be elected uh, the next mayor of New York City. There's really no credible Republican uh, candidates in this race. Uh, And the interesting thing to me, first of all, they're they're using ranked choice voting, which is uh, kind of an interesting uh, aspect to it. Um, But what's particularly interesting to me, uh, in light of the fact that we're also going to have this uh, open race for mayor in in the city of Atlanta, is that we're seeing some very similar issues 
that public safety and crime are the top issues uh, on the minds of voters in New York, as they apparently are here in Atlanta. And we're also seeing something else interesting happening, which is that in these Democratic primaries in New York City, uh, what we're seeing is it looks like, uh, for the most part, it's the, the centrist candidates who are uh, dominating the, these elections with the, uh, the, the, the more progressive candidates, the candidates from the sort of Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party are not uh, do, doing as well. Uh, and, and this follows up uh, with what we saw in Virginia in the gubernatorial primary mm-hmm. in Virginia, where Terry McAuliffe, uh, very much of a, of a kind of center-left Democrat in the, in the, in the mold of Joe Biden, uh, easily uh, won that, that primary, just dominated that field, got 60% or more of, of the vote in the Democratic primary. Uh, and, and it looks like in New York City there's a pretty good chance, uh, again, that we'll see a, a, a sort of center-left uh, a Democrat and not not someone who supports defunding the police, for example, uh, is is likely to to win. And and so I this may have some lessons for for um, our uh, for Georgia. I, I may, it may show us something about what to expect uh, here, um, because again, I, I think I see some similar some similar issues uh, that that are d- dominating uh, uh, the they're really front front and center in the uh, minds of of Democratic primary voters. Uh, Adrian, I think it's interesting uh, that Alan makes those points because, of course, as he says, we're seeing across the country um, more, much more progressive, the, the AOC wing, say, of the Democratic Party, the squad wing of the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders, pushing very hard, believing this is the moment that the Democratic Party can make a, uh, a, a sharp turn to the left and get through uh, an agenda or, or uh, uh, begin to establish an agenda that uh, is a much more uh, liberal agenda for the country. But that's not how voters are responding so far in elections. And it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out, as Alan says, in the next year plus. I agree. Um, I think if there is a time to try to make this push, this is it, right? We're coming out of a, you know, this George Floyd year. Um, people are stimulated, they're uh, paying attention to issues that they think are important. Um, I don't know if we agreed to talk about the federal legislation that's coming down the pike for voters, um, but I think that when we're talking about, for example, these protections earlier in the hour, like for provisional ballots, um, you know, we need to be paying attention to H.R. 1. Um, Even this compromise with Manchin means that um, you know, a provisional ballots would be accepted at the polls if you're in the wrong location. Um, and you know, automatic voter registration would be possible. You'd have early voting. Um, there are some things lacking from that compromise, but those items are going to make a difference in the ability of progressives to be able to further those agendas if they're able to get into office um, in this particular phase. Yeah, the problem is, Renee, that uh, e- even that his mansion worked uh, toward this compromise uh, that would allow him to vote for uh, a version of the federal voting rights bill. Uh, no sooner had he uh, announced that than uh, Minority Leader McConnell said, no deal, we're not going forward with anything. They And Republicans in the Senate actually uh, called it evil and an overreach of power 
so the likelihood of, of it getting anywhere, even with a compromise, seems right now pretty slim, I think. Well, what, what was interesting about, about Mitch McConnell's reaction um, was it came after Stacey Abrams actually, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> said there was some validity to this, uh, to this bill from, from Manchin. And, and, and you just saw and heard the Republican uh, power base up in Washington really just kind of fall over itself with anything attached to what Stacey Abrams has to say which frankly made them look really dumb. You know, there was so much in that bill that they have for years uh, wanted. Um, so it, I think it really just sends a, a message to the rest of the country that they are not committed to getting anything done and nothing is going to get done until uh, they they come to their senses or they get. All right. Why don't we get it? I'm sorry, Renee. Let's get our final break out of the way, and we'll come back with time to talk about a couple more topics. Alan Abramowitz, uh, we're certainly seeing as crime continues to spiral out of control across the city of Atlanta, but up there in Buckhead, uh, the wealthiest part of Uh, the city, largely a white, uh, um, upper-middle-class and wealthier community. Uh, The drive to create a separate city in Buckhead certainly is getting momentum among people who are donating to the cause and that sort of thing. At the same time, it's a little difficult to figure out whether there's going to be real momentum. I don't think a single uh, legislator from the delegation up there has signed on to uh, uh, say that she or he will push for this. It's, we're not quite sure what might happen, but there's no question that this is going to be a big issue come the next legislative oh, yeah. session, right? I'm sure it will be because uh, uh, this kind of, we've never seen anything like this happen. You know, in the previous uh, incorporations of cities have, uh, we, we, we haven't seen really uh, City seceding. Uh, there was this one effort uh, along those lines a much, on a much smaller scale that failed. Um, but this would be this would be huge um, because it would have it. It would have a drastic impact on the rest of the city of Atlanta. But you'd be removing uh, the wealthiest part of the city, uh, a large part of the tax base from the city of Atlanta. It raises all sorts of issues about what would happen to children in, in, in that part of the city where they would go to school um, because you'd be taking you'd be removing this section bucket from the city of Atlanta but but there's no uh, you know school system for them uh, to go to um, so th- th- there's just all sorts of, of issues that are r- raised by this and uh, you know to, to me to me this is just a, another uh, uh, form of white separatism uh, this is just saying, we don't want to be part of this majority-minority city anymore, um, you know, b- because it's not just about crime. Um, I think it's about changing demographics. It's about the sense that we're, we, we no longer have control. We have no longer have the same sort of influence that we were accustomed to having uh, o- over the way we're governed. Adrian, weigh in. Well, I really have more questions than I have answers uh, because – 
as I said, I am relatively new to Atlanta. Um, so I wanted to follow up with, um, you know, how is this different from white flight in earlier periods? I mean, you, you just indicated that this was a unique secession. Um, so how is that different from, you know, what's happened in Atlanta in the past? Uh, you know, Kevin Cruz's title is white flight. Um, you know, just it, it, teach me about how this is significantly different. Um, and, you know, why couldn't they make an agreement to uh, use Atlanta public schools, even if they're going to, to secede? Because obviously the point in my mind is to separate uh, racially, but not necessarily to give up the services. So, so Jim, one of the issues here that Adrian's asking about is this. Um, in, in past uh, uh, secessions, uh, say the city of Dunwoody, uh, say Sandy Springs, uh, those communities were already part of the county school system. So by, right. by creating separate cities, they didn't change what the school uh, 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 districts looked like. But in the city of Atlanta, it's entirely different. You have a city school system, and if Buckhead secedes, where do the students from Atlanta fit in? More, more to the point, even if you could work that out, as Alan has pointed out, the tax base for the public schools so much of that money comes out of that Buckhead community. What happens uh, to funding for the Atlanta public schools? Right, and and I believe you have a constitutional <laughs> restriction against the establishment of any more city-based school system. Exactly, so there would not be a, would have, uh, a yes. Buck, there would not be a Buckhead City school Buckhead City school system, and so so physically, you know, who owns those buildings that the the the, the the APS uh, uh, would would own those buildings that APS now owns. Uh, would there be any change of ownership over to Fulton County if that were the case? And and you know we have uh, we have uh, two panelists that we uh, that often show up here on, on 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 Rewind who are deeply involved in this. Number one is Ed Lindsay. He's kind of uh, the former state house rep who's who's uh, who is uh, uh, representing the anti uh, uh, city of Buckhead. Uh, Effort, uh, but and Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, a state rep who was, was deeply, deeply involved. She's indicator. She was deeply involved in the latest annexation of the city, city, city of Atlanta, of property in East Atlanta, an effort to incorporate Emory University into the city uh, of Atlanta proper. That annexation only included six school-aged children. And a fire and, and and a fire station, and and the the negotiations for that annexation went on for months and months and months. So we're talking about a a a, a huge shift in in resources and bureaucracy that that just would that, that would be mind numbing. Um, Renee, one of the other issues here is is the racial aspect of it. We watched this happen when Eagles Landing, another largely white, upper-middle-class, uh, wealthier community, uh, wanted to secede from Stockbridge. And, and, and so much of that uh, revolved around the fact that they were separating from a community that had a far larger African-American population. And now, of course, you can't separate race from this Buckhead effort at secession either. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's kind of that 
the the overlay of it is that which we won't talk about what's the real reason but we're all talking about it in certain circles and others we're not talking about it and you're going to see it play out the the lack of details though um is alarming from the individuals who put this on the table like okay we're going we want we want to create our own city but oh yeah the the you know the kids i don't know we'll deal with it later you know like we'll figure it out later and it's like okay you know let's 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 be adults here if like obviously there's crime let's deal with the crime you know but don't use it as a fear wedge issue to carve out your elitist understanding of what it means to live in buckhead a part of atlanta well i think there's a couple of things going on here one is that the people who are leading this movement as in the case of earlier cityhood movements in fulton county and dekalb county uh are individuals who I think in many cases are hoping to exercise power themselves. They want to take over, essentially. We're going to be running this new city as we see fit. The, the other thing that I think is very strange about all of these um, uh, cityhood movements that we've seen in recent years uh, in, in Metro Atlanta is that the only people who get to vote on whether to go forward with this are the people within the designated area, which is carved out specifically, the map is drawn in a way to, to try to ensure that the people who are included in that area will support the, the, the movement to, to create the city. But nobody outside uh, of that area gets any say, uh, even though this is going to have a tremendous impact on the tax base of the entire city and, and on the future outlook uh, of, of the rest of the city, just as happened in, in DeKalb County and, and Fulton County with these, with these secessions. So I think it's a very flawed system, um, but we've seen it happen before, and, and, and I am afraid it could happen again this time, although, you know, we'll see. This one, I think, is going to be very controversial, and, uh, you know, as has been pointed out so far, we haven't seen the kind of support it would need to really have any uh, in the legislature to have a, a chance of success. Um, we are completely out of time. Adrian, you want to get a fast word in? I just wanted to say to some degree we are talking about race when we're talking about crime. Not to say that there is no crime, but I think that the crime discussion um, is one that is talking about race. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I appreciate that. I think, I think that, yes. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you to all of you uh, for uh, today's conversation. It was great to have you all here. Adrian Jones, come back. We loved having you on today. Uh, Renee Alegria, thank you very much. I wanted to ask you about Lin-Manuel Miranda and the controversy over the fact there are no dark-skinned Hispanics in, in the Heights. Maybe we'll have you come back and talk about it because it's an interesting example of intersectionality at work. Alan Abramowitz, thank you. Jim Galloway, great to have you. Hey, tomorrow we're going to have Sarah Schulman on the show. She's written a book called Let the Record Show, which is a history of ACT UP uh, in New York City, the organization that was a very aggressive uh, effort to fight the government for not responding to the AIDS crisis. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Hope you'll all join us. I'm Bill Nygut. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. If you haven't been vaccinated, do it, please, because then you don't have to wear a mask. See you tomorrow.